The OAM Network is an independently run podcast and live production company in Memphis, Tennessee. TheOAMNetwork.com. Power to the podcast. Welcome to Something to Say, conversation of two friends of 40 years, two clergy, one retired, that's me, and one still doing the work, Sky, that's Sky, and we welcome you to this time of intentional conversation with folks, and today we have quite a guest, I think she's a remarkable pastor, remarkable spiritual person, Reverend Amanda Christ. Before we get to her though, let's check in, Sky, how's it going? Uh, It's going okay. It's strange season for everyone, strange season when you watch the news, what's going around in the world, but finding some routine, and I'm a person of routine and discipline, so uh, I, I don't have many complaints. Things are good. Good. That's good. We don't have Gil with us this morning with some scheduling issues, so any audio problems you hear on this episode are not his fault. They're mine, but I'm going to try to make it not suck. I uh, will so, We'll be all right. Yeah, we'll be fine. So we're grateful that you're with us as we're back into our second season. There are multiple ways to be supportive of us. We seek to continue to do this work, but only to the degree that it's self-sustaining. So when the messages come up for how you can be supportive, please respond as you feel led. Uh, Let us know if there are folks you want us to talk to or things you want us to talk about something twosaypod at gmail.com. That email is alive. I've even sent an email or so to it just to make sure it works. It does work. I've just not received much input elsewhere, but that's because the folks who know us will just text us or call us. So I get it. So that's, that's cool. So we're grateful that you're listening and uh, we, we get good feedback from folks who tell us that they're listening and it's gratifying to know that there's some some level to which we are able to still be engaged in all this so when we come back we'll be joined by amanda christ we're grateful for everyone who through their financial contributions makes this podcast possible and we invite you to offer yours use the cash app dollar sign p-o-d-m-e-m or venmo at p-o-d-m-e-m and indicate something to say as the beneficiary of your gift. Thank you for all of your support. Friends, we welcome Reverend Amanda Christ to Something to Say today. She is the pastor of the First United Methodist Church in Martin, Tennessee, someone that Sky and I have known and watched come along in growth in ministry and now serving in this particular role. Amanda, we're grateful that you're with us today and thank you for some of your time. I'm excited to be here. Thanks, guys. Tell us a little bit about your story, how you perceived call and how you began to live into it as we understand clergy leaders who are now very much into the work of this time in the church's life. (laughs) Depends on how long of a story you want, but um, I, I did... Uh, come from a different background than the Methodist Church where I'm serving now. I grew up in a pretty fundamental denomination, one where the call of a woman to ministry wasn't allowed. So even though 
in hindsight, I can see I had a lot of proclivity for this as a kid. It just, it didn't cross my mind. But now remembering like when I was in kindergarten, I was running around the, the playground being like, he's alive, he's alive. I mean, who uh, reenacts the Easter story on their school playground? Evangelical preschooler. Yeah, well, it was an evangelical <laughs> denomination, but I had a lot of leadership role in high school. And then in college, I was active in a ministry that was in my denomination. and. I started feeling some dissonance between what we were talking about, what was going on in the campus ministry, and what I was experiencing in other areas, in the classroom, in the organizations I was involved in. And I just didn't feel the pull to be involved in that ministry. And so I sort of just floated away for a while until I started dating a Methodist. And uh, yeah, (laughs) yeah, it just so happens at the church he was at. That summer, they received an associate pastor named Emily Birch. She was a a lightning rod figure for me because I've never seen anybody that looked like me (laughs) serving in a pulpit like that. That first summer, she gathered me and several others my age up and just started talking to us. And she perceived my gifts and put me immediately in leadership roles even though I was with her only for two years, those two years just rocked my world, changed me for the better, I believe, and helped me to see things in a more expanded way. I did have inklings of a call then. I I mean, I knew I was really passionate about the work I was doing through Wesley. I remember a bulletin board that had seminary opportunities on it. And I was like, yeah, that, that feels like a good right next step. But I also had an engagement ring and a job offer teaching at a school there in town. And I just followed kind of the flow uh, and and put that call on hold for a while. So I spent three years teaching a middle school, seventh grade. Awesome. I wouldn't take it back. (laughs) I loved teaching middle school reading, but my third year I got moved to math and I believe that was God's provenient grace to help me exit the the profession of teaching and enter the world of ministry because teaching seventh grade math is literally hell. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Those kids were smarter than I was. That was the problem. I'm sure the test scores were really low that year, (laughs) but uh, that, that third year I was teaching. um, I knew too. I I, I remember telling my colleagues um, that first year, I I don't think I'm going to do this forever. I think there's something more. And that third year, teaching, I got a call that January from Richard Smith, who was the pastor at Murray First at the time. And he said, I need you to come be our youth director. (laughs) But the thing is, is, I mean, he, he knew he touched into something that was already there in me. I started uh, in March. So I was still teaching school, kind of took that first step into work in ministry full time and professionally, I guess. It was difficult, but beautiful. And I learned a lot. And about my third year doing that work, the man that I'd married, that first Methodist that got me into the Methodist church, he told me that he didn't love me anymore. And it was right before Youth Sunday. (laughs) So really good timing (laughs) to be told that your husband doesn't want to be in the marriage with you anymore. And, you know, I still have that fundamental evangelical background that was like, oh, gosh, I can't. I can't do this ministry work and lead. I mean, there was so much shame, so much 
desperation to make the marriage work because I felt like I was supposed to, that I spent a year just clawing after it, trying, trying to force this marriage to survive because mostly I knew I was supposed to be doing this work. And I thought that the two had to go together. The truth is we just married too young. Mm -hmm. Uh, We didn't know ourselves before we dove into that relationship. I will always thank him for the the opportunities he opened up in my life. But now years past it, I can see that shouldn't, that was a college relationship. It should have ended (laughs) before it it headed into marriage. Uh, It did end in divorce after about a year of struggle. And that time after divorce was some of my first really digging in and and working on self-knowledge and understanding who I am and how I, I started to learn what codependency was <laughs> and how that was a huge part of the relationship that I was in. It was a good year uh, after divorce to sort of do a lot of self-discovery. And in that year of self-discovery, I realized I'd really been halfway doing this call that I had been perceiving for a long time. So I finally took the leap and started applying to schools. I knew I needed to go somewhere else (laughs) to really continue that journey of self-discovery and kind of expanding my worldview. I ended up lucky enough to receive scholarships to go to Candler. A fine Methodist institution. Very fine institution. Whatever. (laughs) I loved my time there. I got to serve a church there that was in the midst of some really exciting growth. It was such an eclectic and diverse neighborhood, so much different than anything I'd ever experienced in Murray or Southern Illinois where I grew up. So I just had an amazing experience in Atlanta and serving at Candler. I did meet someone right before I left that who is now my current husband, and he's just been an amazing partner in this ministry with me. After I graduated from Candler, I knew that that college experience was really the the major catalyst for me in whether I was going to leave the faith or dive deeper into the faith. And I was really on the precipice of leaving the faith until I met Emily and started involving myself at Wesley. And I, and I knew that a huge part of why I wanted to turn toward the faith was because she saw my unique gifts and gave me opportunities to use those gifts in God's kingdom. And I really wanted to do that for college students. So uh, when the bishop came to visit at Candler, (laughs) actually funny story, before the bishop came to visit at Candler, Richard Smith called me again. (laughs) (laughs) And he said he needed me to come be his associate at Germantown. (laughs) Of course he did. (laughs) And, um, you know, it was a great offer. And he told me that there would be good opportunities with young adults and et cetera, et cetera. And, um, I believe I was your district superintendent. Yes. Yes, you were, Sky. <laughs> yep. I, re- I do remember all that vividly now. Yep. Just brought the memory back. Yep. Yep. Um, I guess he'd talk to the bishop about potentially doing this as well. I don't know. But anyway. yes, he did. Yeah. He had all these <laughs> things. He talked, to, he talked to me too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah told you that that's yeah well and I you know I was flattered and I I owe Richard a lot 
for that first invitation, but it was not, I just did not feel at peace about like that being the thing that I needed to go into. But I, I know well enough, you don't tell people where you're supposed to go. You submit to a process. Yes. So when the bishop came, he said, can you give me a moral reason <laughs> why I shouldn't send you to Germantown? And I said, absolutely not. I'm, I will, I will go where you send me. He said, well, I know that, but, but you know, would you go to Germany? I said, yes, yes, I'll go. But I feel like I have to tell you that I feel really called to campus ministry. I really feel like that's where I'm supposed to be. And I remember coming to talk to you, Sky, and sharing that and wishing I had uh, maybe one less year of seminary so I could have the job at Murray State. Right. <laughs> right. Murray State was making some decisions. All about time. timing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You spoke about in college. Uh, a dissonance that you were perceiving. Would you call that the beginnings of an understanding of a, not necessarily that you're abandoning your native faith tradition as much as perhaps recognizing that it can be questioned? Mm-hmm. And what were there particular places in which the dissonance was more pronounced in you that you can speak to? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. First of all, the can it be questioned? Yes. That was probably the first kind of coming of age realization that I am questioning this. And I actually have memories from childhood of guilt. I mean, as a young kid, having doubts and questions and having that little voice come in and say, you can't ask that. This isn't okay. But in college, I just saw more people who felt comfortable with that. And I'll tell you, the place that really still all these years later goes down for me as a pivotal place was I was on staff at the yearbook there at Murray State and the business editor at the time, her name was Michelle and she was a lesbian. I really liked Michelle. She was fun to work with when I first met her and understood that piece of her. I felt like I needed to go pray for her at my campus ministry. And that was sort of my first gut instinct. Then as I kept getting to know the campus ministry and kept getting to know Michelle, I noticed that the stuff I was experiencing at the ministry that felt clicky and superficial and not super welcoming didn't look a lot like the time I was spending with Michelle and the other folks at the yearbook. I felt more at ease around them. And then one day Michelle talks about how she went to church and I mean, she, she was active in her. I don't know what church she went to. The fact that she went to church, it was like something didn't compute. And then I thought, Oh, so she can be who she is and still believe in God (laughs) and still have this faith. And I mean, it sounds so silly now, but at the time that was groundbreaking for me. Sure. And so, it, 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 and, then, and of course, then it wasn't long after that, that I meet this female minister. And so all these sort of roadblocks or boundaries, whatever you want to call them, they started to seem less clear. They were more gray. Well, I'm just wondering, you know, you, you had this, your in your, your school playground doing the Easter story. I mean, clearly there was something about you that was full of 
some expression of the faith that could easily be interpreted as, oh, she's going to be a minister, but there was not room for that. Mm-hmm. If, a, if, if a boy had done that on the school playground, there would have been no question but the path, right? Same yeah. 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 Absolutely. Yeah. I, I, I think I just at the time wouldn't have even known that that should have been noticed in me, mm-hmm. you know? Um, but yeah, looking back, I, I kind of grieve that for that little girl mm-hmm. <laughs> that she didn't have anybody to look at and see as an example, um, that nobody felt like it was something that needed to be nurtured in her. Mm-hmm. Um, there, and I don't, you know, the little church I grew up in, it's now a much bigger church. It's grown a lot, but, uh, those folks loved me. They nurtured me. I learned the Bible, um, what it said, black and white. (laughs) I I, I memorized verses. I did all these things, but there was this sort of limit for me. Whereas uh, you talk about uh, if a boy had done that, um, you know, I had peers at 18 years old that were ordained in the church that I grew up in Wow! because they said they had a call. Uh, it's one of the reasons I really appreciate the Methodist system. There are a lot of things that we need to reform and grow in and, you know, <laughs> some refinement has to be done, but I really appreciate the accountability in the process toward becoming a pastor. Um, I think that's good because <laughs> now after seeing some of those peers of mine that were, were offered that weighty platform at such a young age, um, I can see why damage is done. I can see why, we perpetuate unhelpful things. I mean, we can look right now at cultural Christianity and just see how far off we are. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think part of that is is allowing folks before they're ready, before they've done their own work, to be mouthpieces for that faith. Um, it's dangerous, <laughs> and I think we're seeing some of the consequences. There's of that. no doubt about that. Now, you know, you're dealing with two people: one who served as a superintendent, and then in my work with the board. There is stuff about that process that feels like you're running the gauntlet, to be sure, on this side of things now, whether or not that particular process needs to be reformed or shortened or whatever. I I would argue it perhaps needs to be refocused and that the work of self-discovery is as important as answering the disciplinary questions satisfactorily. Mm-hmm. And we don't allow for that in a way that's not prescribed. And if it's prescribed, just how much of yourself you're going to put into it anyway. Mm-hmm. What do you think about that, Sky? You, I know you, you've had long opinions about the process over the years. Uh, we suck at it in the beginning. We do not give that opportunity for self-discovery and to do some solid work about uh, self-awareness. Uh, who am I? Where do I fit? So I, I agree with that. I, I, there's a lot of reform that needs to take place, but it needs to be done on the front end and ongoing because, you know, the person I was when I was 24 and the person I was when I was, you know, 54, two different people. Mm-hmm. And, should have- be, and should be. Absolutely. Absolutely. I have to give props to our board of ordained ministry who um, is helping pay for my work. I'm currently doing work through Hayden 
Institute, which is uh, spiritual direction training. And I have no real desire to like be an official spiritual, spiritual director. It's just that that process is allows for some good, deep self-awareness work. That's uh-huh. really, if I hadn't started that program a year ago, I don't know if I could handle the gauntlet that I'm running through now uh, in my new appointment. Spiritual direction is far superior to uh, the model that Johnny and I were kind of subjected to when we went through, which was basically a CPE counseling confrontational model. You know, uh, I think it, and I think it's the gospel reading today, you know, uh, to thyself be true. Uh, who, who, who do you say I am? That's not just a question Jesus asked folks. That's a question we have to ask ourselves. Mm-hmm. At the same time, you know, I, I, I'm not a complete deconstructionist here. I, I think if you perceive a call, it deserves to be tested. Yeah. So, and so I, I don't, I don't want to speak as if I think the process from the perception of call through the laying on of hands needs to be somehow weakened. I don't at all. I do think there's some room to refocus where points of uh, emphasis need to be made. And that may be coming in some way anyway with whatever is in front of us. I I wanted to move a bit since you've done some campus ministry. What's your general perception if, if, and maybe, maybe generalizations are, are too cliche here, but you worked with college age people Mm-hmm. College was a time that was pivotal for you where dissonance was being perceived. Mm-hmm. What is the, what was your sense of ministering with uh, and among college aged folks and their faith journeys? I think um, it's pretty uh, widespread that dissonance for the, especially for those. And I can speak to the this kind of region, this Bible Belt region where cultural Christianity and then, you know, Christianity in practice, which I, I see a difference between them, that that's when they start learning how to think critically around it. And, you know, there are college students, you know, they, they get blamed all oh, that they want to sleep in on Sunday, you know, you can't expect too much out of them, et cetera, et cetera. And maybe sure, some of that is true, but but really these students kind of take what Jesus says seriously. They kind of see the places where uh, the church will say one thing and do another. And they're they're a bit weary <laughs> with um that sort of hypocritical um posture in the world. Mm-hmm. Um when you offer them a space to kind of start that process of self-knowledge where they're allowed to be who they are and not feel like they have to censor themselves based on some sort of um, whatever parameters are set out there, a place where they can start to understand their gifts and what their gifts can contribute to the world and to God's kingdom. They're just as apt to show up and be a part of, of something as anybody else. But I feel like the church has sort of siloed them off as much as I think campus ministry is wonderful. I also think it's, it's too far in that direction of putting them in this silo and and we'll, we'll have this for them. Mm -hmm. Um, We haven't found ways to integrate 
all that they are into the life of the whole church. And I think that's true of all age group specific ministries. And again, it's a, I say, it's not a throw the baby out with the bathwater situation, but um, with our youth ministry, with our children's ministry, with our senior adults ministry, we do all these things in silos. And I think the power of the church is in its intergenerational connections. And that's something I started to realize at Wesley is that if they're going to starve out <laughs> if it's only them that they're interacting with, because they're not, they have the zeal, they have the excitement, they have the gifts. They even have a prophetic edge, I think, because I think our young folks can sort of see things without the jaded uh, life experience that we get, <laughs> you know, moving forward. Um but they also need counsel and guidance from those who have gone before them and folks who are a little more seasoned in life. And they also need young people, that, younger people that they need to serve and, and offer themselves to. And so what I've learned is I think it's great. I think it's not enough. And I think the church needs to be more actively involved in that work instead of, well, we, we put our apportionments toward that and that campus minister, you know, they'll deal with that over there. Yeah, we've taken care of that problem. We've made an appointment. Yeah, that's, uh, I'm interested in that because I, you know, you reflect upon if your own experience is an analog to some level of what you may have encountered as you ministered with these people, is there, they're wrestling with their their birth faith story as well, right? And how it squares with the world and maybe their own inner leanings and such. What is, is there a mistrust of the greater church by that generation? And and to what might you attribute that? <laughs> the uh, conversation that's coming to my mind is one I had with uh, a student who was a leader at the Wesley Foundation I served at. And we sort of knew it was going to be time for a move. The the um, All the hints were in the air for me last year that I needed to sort of tie up the affairs at UTM Wesley and be ready to submit to whatever call was next. So I was real intentional with my leadership to sort of prepare that and make sure that there was sustainability moving forward and what we had built because the Wesley had grown a lot in the last five years mm -hmm. and even surviving a pandemic, there was still a structure there that wasn't there when, when I first started and the student said to me, or I told the student, I said, I've, I've worked really hard with Martin first Methodist to make sure that you're, that the Wesley is in the mission statement there and to make sure that there's an awareness in that church, that this is a ministry that they invest in. And he said, that's all fine and good, but I'm not sure about being tied too close to any church because it seems like the church doesn't get the, the simplicity of love. It's they, they see, they are not ignorant to the arguments that we're having amongst ourselves right now. They see the behavior of people on all sides of the argument, the ways that we treat each other, the ways that we've, we've uh, prioritized our resources, our money over and above our mission, uh, the ways that uh, we are more tied to the rules uh, or what we understand as purity than we are to making sure we meet people where they are. And in his mind, it boils down to, I'm not seeing love as the primary function of the church. 
And I, I just, I think that's, we have to take that seriously. <laughs> well, since you brought up Martin first, that's my home church. And I grew up there and then I was appointed there as an associate pastor and I've gone back there a couple of times to speak. Uh, and I'm glad you're the pastor there. Uh, congratulations, by the way. Uh, how do you see pastoring uh, a small town with a college attached to it with also a lot of business owners and agricultural folks all there in one church. How does, how, what's your read on it getting started? Well, it's kind of a, a really perfect storm going on right now. <laughs> it's, it's pretty difficult, but it's also quite revealing of just all the factors. If I wasn't, I mean, one could come in and not see some of this stuff at play if it weren't for everything that's forcing it to be revealed right now. So the pandemic and the the continued need to be mindful about taking measures to protect each other uh, is a revealing thing. Um, the current denominational struggles, it, that's a pretty revealing thing. To be in a town that's mostly informed by uh, Baptist Church of Christ, those are probably the two primary denominations uh, in this community. And so our Methodist uh, congregation members work with the Baptists. They have lunch with the Baptists. They're friends with the Baptists in the Church of Christ. And so to be the first woman appointed at this church is another factor. And then also to be so near in proximity to a church that has made the decision to try to leave the denomination because we have Union City, First United Methodist, who's decided to leave the denomination. So all of these things are, it's a perfect storm. (laughs) What I'm seeing, the, the need to wear masks or not wear masks has driven some people away. The Union City uh, exit has drawn some of our folks who feel really conservatively around that. And what I'm seeing there is kind of a lack of basic knowledge around what Methodist theology is. I think we don't understand that the gospel doesn't hinge on this conversation of human sexuality, that anything that the gospel doesn't hinge on, that as Methodist, we can live and worship together and maybe not see things the same way. I think it's hard for our church members right now to be Methodist in this community of Martin because they're being told by folks that they don't believe the Bible anymore or that, I mean, there's one rumor that the bishop is trying to liberalize this church and there's a huge liberal agenda and that's why I've been placed here. And um, That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, if it makes you feel any better and misery loves company, I see some of the same things here. Uh, we're not that far away from uh, having Baptist and Church of Christ kind of rule the roost down here, too, but it hurts me to see my home church go through that. Well, let me tell you this, too, because I think the good side of it is that I, I think what it's doing, it's serving as a catalyst to help those who are in it who are um, Methodist in the way that they approach their theology, those who are convicted um, by the need to be disciples in the world, uh, who believe in our mission statement. I'm seeing these people rise up right now. 
and uh, organize themselves in ways that that remind me um, the beauty of our system is that really the success of our churches is in the hands of the laity. That's right. Um, they, you know, as a, as a pastor, my job is to preach and teach and guide and offer what I can from the privilege I've had to study and, and learn and grow. But it's their job to, to run the mission and ministry of the church. And it's mine to lift them up and to empower them in that. And I'm seeing it. You know, I, I'm seeing folks have intentional conversations. I'm seeing them wrestle with what does it mean that we're Methodist? What is this? This crisis that we're faced with right now and all these people who are who are unsettled or who are leaving, what does that mean? Who do who are it's it, it, it is like spiritual direction for the congregation <laughs> right now. It's that crisis moment that forces us to go inward and say, who are we? <laughs> who are we? What did, what are we about? What, what, what do we stand for? And I'm really proud of those who are doing that right now. And I think I call this time a refining fire. It's hard, but I think we're going to come out the other side of it as a church that's more clear on its convictions, more clear about who it is, and it's going to make a greater impact in the community. And I do think you asked about the college. I think the college is a huge part of that. You can't be a church in this town and not acknowledge the huge mission field that is the campus community. And this town wouldn't be what it is without the campus. And Oh, it wouldn't. Mm-hmm. How much do you see partisan American politics guiding all this in your church particular? It's uh, You can't separate, it seems like, right now. Christian nationalism is alive and well. This confusion about, is it the Bible or is it politics? You know, there's, and I'm, I'm not certain that in everybody's mind, there's a clear difference. Those that are thought- Full people, regardless of their stripe, realize that uh, politics is the new American religion, and mm-hmm. the church is having to compete with that. It always has, but I think now it's ruled the roost. The thing that's got the folks who have left, uh, the major thing that I hear about the folks who have left the church right now is this this word liberal. Nobody knows what it means. It's what yeah. the enemy is. I know I've been called one for a long time, so. Um, and I, I don't know what the word conservative means either. Yeah, I don't think if they so. were conservative. They'd be Catholic. But these are these are politically charged words. Absolutely. And they're using they're using those words to justify their exit and over above their ability to read, interpret and wrestle with scripture about where scripture would guide us. Very few people have had the willingness to come talk to me about their exit. But the folks who have. They, <laughs> I've heard a lot of things, but but one being, well, I just I just want to hear somebody preach the Bible, which I've done <laughs> since I've been there. And when they when they want to come at me with that, I ask, you know, at what point do you feel I strayed from the Bible? And they can't give me anything. There's that's, nothing. There's, that's, you know, that's their friends telling them you're not a Bible church, whatever. That that's a loaded phrase too. Into, yeah. into this space where you're, you're proximate to a disaffiliated congregation or attempting to, I don't know what the process is with that, but, and that churns close to and inside Martin, what does that do to you? 
how are you tending to your own soul as you are trying to hold what is, you know, a, a charge you're given mm-hmm. as the pastor of that congregation? Do you feel it personally? Are you able to hold that in a, a proper context as you lead? It requires a lot of attention to my own soul. Yes, the context I'm currently in. And if I hadn't done some of the work I've done in therapy, I believe in therapy. Everybody needs therapy. Amen, sister. <laughs> in spiritual, I see it my own spiritual director. I have my own routines. Um, you know, like I said, I, I usually try to devote Tuesdays to working and studying and, and um, being at home kind of away from the noise at least one day a week to stay centered and focused. All of that is very necessary. It would be very easy. My personality type, I'm an Enneagram too. We want to be helpful. Uh, If we're not careful, we see our worth wrapped up in what we can do for others. And uh, a situation where nobody's happy with me (laughs) is sort of like living hell. (laughs) Um, So I do have to have a certain level of detachment, I think. From it, and I don't mean that in a, an uncompassionate way. Actually, the detachment helps me to have more love and empathy for the people who seem to be so mad at me. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I'm actually very heartbroken for the church because, you know, I've been here in this community for five years. I know and love this church. I deeply love this church. I've seen this church at, at some really great moments. But I realize I'm not the one who grew up in this church. You know, there are folks that I work with who are watching their Sunday school teachers leave. They're watching their confirmation mentors leave. They're watching people who they've shared life with for decades walk out of their church. And that that sort of puts it in perspective for me to realize this isn't about me. (laughs) You know, uh, I might have been a catalyst for whatever people presume they know about me or the agenda that I, that they think that I come with, but it's really not about me. And so that's, it's helpful for me to remember that and to take care of myself in that process. And then I think it helps make me a better pastor to the, to those wherever they fall in this. I still see myself as the pastor of those who have disappeared for a while. They're still on the rolls, Mm -hmm. you know, um, I still want to be there for them as much as they'll let me. I'm only able to, I think, because I can detach a little bit from it. Well, and you're wise to do that and have the disciplines. Uh, and some pastors, regardless of their age, never get there. Johnny would be the expert in helping pastors sort through that and doing their own self-care because you see the dangers of trying to be liked and uh, the danger of trying to be all things for all people. You're wise to see that it's not about you and kudos for uh, therapy and spiritual direction. I think you're, you're a better pastor, you're a better leader, better spiritual guide. And you know those things about yourself. I, I think the current moment has us reacting rather than responding. Oh, yeah. As, as systems and structures, as individuals. Part of my continuing work. This guy taught at MTS this summer. They actually asked me to come teach. I didn't know I could still do that, but I did, I know I did this um, course on uh, the 12 steps and Wesley's accountable discipleship and kind of held those in juxtaposition. 
and into that coming out of my own experience with the way at St. John's and some of the things that we try to do there is that every church is, if a church is not an outpost for recovery, it's not really the church right now. And part of the work of the 12 steps ultimately is to make amends. And I think after what all this reaction is going to be, there's going to be a hell of a lot of amends to be made. People who have worshipped together for decades who've walked away, how can you facilitate a reconciliation or repair? Because that's going to—that's a wound, right? Yeah. And and I'm whatever the denomination does, you know, it's it's not going to be what everybody wants. There's no doubt about that. But the relational work that is done by seeking and making a place for repair to occur, that might be a profound opportunity for a church to reclaim its soul, to welcome, welcome the wayward home. Mm-hmm. And if I, if I were still preaching, preaching, which I'm not, of course, or maybe I am right now, I don't know. I was going to say, it sounds like you are. Well, if I were still preaching, the line that you shared was you were reflecting on a college student was that the problem with the church is that it's ignorant to the simplicity of love. That'll go, that'll preach. And what does it take to, to come around to that, to be awakened to that? So you've got this moment that is ever changing. And I guess, depending upon I don't know if it even depends upon what the denomination does. It's it's happening now, right? You're living in it in real time at some level. Yeah. And conspiracy theories abound, which are just hilarious, but still at some level painful, I would think, right? Yeah. It's yeah. like, because you have life in that town, you are known. Okay. Yeah. I, that I, I feel some level of, of pain in knowing that how can you give of yourself to a community so faithfully for so long and how quickly barbs and untruths be spoken for some reason that makes no sense. So that you are tending to your own self as you do that. And at the same time, do you swat them down or do you laugh them off? Or how do you hold a line where it's not like you're overly defensive, but BS is BS and you can't let it stand, right? Oh yeah, that defensive piece, I have to, I really have to spend time when I, especially if I'm entering a conversation with somebody who probably has a different perspective than me, I literally have to sit in myself and say, take the walls down, take the walls down. You know, this isn't about you. Defensiveness is not gonna do anything for us right now. <laughs> and, and really I'm seeing it in the lectionary. Ephesians was uh, in the lectionary immediately after I started and talk about the Bible and scripture being right on time. If we sit in it, there's so much that's about a divided community, right? Mm-hmm. And Christ tearing down those walls and, and putting, taking that defensiveness down and helping people to find that unity in Christ. Um, and then heading into Mark, you know, this week we looked at at even Jesus having to have his inhibitions removed with the Seraphonician woman. And so um, it's like a constant refrain for me mm-hmm. 
to not be defensive, not be defensive, because that's a huge part of the problem. And if I come in defensive, then I'm contributing to this to the mess as much as anything. So how do you think Paul's letter to Galatians would read today? Well, I'm a real fan of the way Elaine Heath uh, worked through that and her her book, God Unbound. Um, She really talked about how um, that letter, (laughs) if we let it, points to the expansiveness of God and uh, not the limitedness of God. And I think our trying to find something to grab onto because it's scary, right. To, to not have rules, to not have bounds. So we have to create these bounds so that we know we're in them. Um, and she would argue that really what that letter is saying is that the freedom in Christ is, is quite huge. It's quite expansive. A friend of mine, well, Sam Chambers, who's come to be the Wesley director now. Uh, he's a great friend of mine and such a deep thinker. He brought up Sam reads as a hobby. He sure does. And not light reading. <laughs> it's, it's nope. real. It's deep. And, and I, I want to say he was talking about Kierkegaard when he talked about how the, the line between faith and sin is very thin. He said that, the, that faith is that free fall and that sin is the instinct to catch ourselves in the fall. And I think that was such a helpful perspective for me to to look at the situation we're in at the church, because I think our sin in this current moment is to try to catch ourselves and find something that we need to hang our hat on. And that something is not the gospel. (laughs) That's it is whatever it's a, it's an affinity with a, with a political party, a perspective, a leaning in how you interpret the scripture. None of this is really in that freedom that Christ offers us in the gospel. Both Galatians and Ephesians address those matters. Galatians more so uh, because it says, how quickly, how quickly have you changed uh, your song? uh, Believe in this other gospel, not that there is another gospel. I I think it's the book, a book for the season. It is. It is. And then, and the matters uh, taking the matter of a spirit and moving it to matters of flesh. We've done that. (laughs) Um, Yeah. Which it's not lost on me that the whole divide is, is circumcision, which is a private matter, (laughs) you know, on somebody's body that we have taken and made a public thing as if we, wow. (laughs) But yeah, it it fits our narcissistic society that you've got to have a certain look and Mm -hmm. you've got to have attained a certain level and you've got to be seen a certain way publicly. Uh, and uh, that's totally missing the point. Mm-hmm. You know what else I think is happening too, is that I think people are afraid. One of the things I do a lot of listening or reading Brene Brown, and she talks about how one of the biggest uh, uh, precipitators of shame in the workplace is when somebody feels irrelevant. And I think when people see culture moving in a direction that feels foreign or not what they are used to or comfortable with, it does increase that shame, increase that feeling of irrelevance. And then out of that, we project a need to be relevant uh, by forcing 
our perspectives out there as if they are gospel. And so I do think shame is rooted in a lot of this, which brings me back to what you were saying, Johnny, about the 12 steps. Oh my gosh. I, I just, I, when I was doing campus ministry, one of the things I was shocked by was how many folks, even at that age, were self-medicating with drugs and alcohol. And it was my instinct to at first try to police this among my leaders. I had, I had amazingly talented students who were in leadership roles in this ministry that was sort of rebuilding. And um, I felt like they, they didn't need to be doing that. And, you know, I, I, was the, I was the Pharisee in the situation where, you know, you got to stop this. And it wasn't until a few months into realizing you can't police that when somebody's doing this as a form of self-medication that I finally started to realize that we really had to address the root of why they were behaving this way. Uh-huh. And it, we went through that book, Breathing Underwater um, by Richard Rohr. And we Great spent, book. yeah. And we spent some time going through the 12 steps together And I would say that was some of the most transformational work I got to be a part of was walking through these, walking through addiction with these students, not as a police, somebody who policed their uh, behavior, but as somebody who wanted to offer a space where they could heal whatever the wound was that was causing that. And, and I don't, I, I really think that is our work and it's not, the addiction doesn't show up just in substance abuse. The addiction, I think, shows up in a, in a myriad of ways, even to our resistance to change, right? I mean, we're literally walking through global trauma right now. Every single one of us has been through trauma in this last 18 months, two years, whatever, a good many people don't want to address that (laughs) and uh, don't want to heal from that. They, they want, they just want things to go back to how it was. And I really think that this it's apocalyptic in the truest sense of the word right now, it's a revealing of where we are. And a good bit of our work is that healing that getting to the root of what caused us to be so divided in the first place. Cause the, the, the partisanship, the, the overly rigid purity laws. I mean, even just like with this abortion law in Texas right now, oh my gosh, <laughs> the um, it really has very little to do with um, protecting life as much as it has to do with controlling, right? Controlling certain people. Mm-hmm. I wonder, um, yeah, I, I'm someone I used to, work with was want to say that we've all got a God-sized hole in our hearts and um, we've, we're all addicted to something and we've all tried to fill that hole with everything, but the only thing that can. And um, I think that's right. And in this moment, and while I think it is, I think some rock bottom needs to be hit within the church. But right now, I think the church, both in the micro and macro level, is addicted to being right. Yeah. Yeah. And some some 12-step work as a congregation, I think, could be profoundly redemptive. But as it is, you got to want it. You can't can't make that happen. For somebody that doesn't preach the Bible, you sure do talk about it a lot. 
you're just kind of a enigma. I don't understand you at all. Um, <laughs> let me uh, ask you, do you have any questions for us? I mean, we're, uh, we're using all your time. Well, no, I'm, I'm happy to stay in the conversation and I, I kind of, I want to make sure I share my Johnny Jefford story. <laughs> Everybody's got a Johnny Jefford. <laughs> it can be repeated. I hope it's a good one. Um, Several. There, and it goes with, I think where we are in the church right now, you know, it was when I was uh, commissioned, I, I went through the board interviews and knew that I was going to pass. Johnny was the um, board of ordained ministry at the time, our chair of the board of ordained ministry. He wasn't the whole board. <laughs> Wouldn't that be something? Mm-hmm. But. Uh, <laughs> he uh he preached the sermon right after I got the word that I had been approved for commissioning. And he preached Isaiah 43. And it was the first time that I had ears to hear what Isaiah 43 was saying. I'm not saying it was the first time I'd heard it. I think it was the first time I had ears to hear it. And uh he got down to that those verses 18 and 19 where it talked about do not remember the former things. See, I am doing a new thing. Do you not perceive it? And uh, I knew at that moment, sitting there in the sunroom at Lakeshore, that that was a defining passage of scripture for my call into ministry, that whatever I was walking into, it was going to be around this new thing. God is doing a new thing right now in the church, in the world, and I get to participate in that. The thing about it is, is those first few years, I hadn't done enough ego work to realize that the new thing wasn't up to me. (laughs) Um, and, and I kept, I kept hearing it, you know, uh, Johnny preached it at commissioning then, um, oh, Bishop, uh, she's the Bishop in Louisiana. Um, oh, Harvey. Yes. Yes. Um, she preached the same scripture at the, at the worship service there uh, at my commissioning service. I, I, it showed up in multiple places. And so it was confirmed. It was confirmed, but a couple years after that, I was doing some meditative work with the passage at a Sabbath retreat. And I was looking at that passage of scripture and the word perceive jumped out at me because it showed me that my job is not to do the new thing. It is to perceive the new thing. Um, And some of the work I had to do to be able to perceive it was getting over myself. was uh to to stop you know uh thinking that i had to be the one to do it um stop trying to control so much of it uh and so um anyway i think about johnny when i think about johnny i think about that passage of scripture and i'm i'm so grateful for that sort of anchor passage that's that's guided and it's it continues to transform even as i walked into this appointment i did not think i wanted to serve the church <laughs> I thought that I wanted to remain in extension ministry, which is a serving of the, the larger church, but I didn't think I wanted to be in the congregational church. And I, um, I realized that part of what God does with old things is uh, use them to make the new thing. I just wanted to make sure I shared that. That's a, Needing words of affirmation as one is discerning whether or not he still is a part of this thing or not is helpful. So I appreciate that very much. I believe you are. Um, This work work that y'all are doing, uh, these conversations, I think, is 
a part of that new thing because another part of it is that people don't know how to talk about these hard things. No. <laughs> no. And so I appreciate this ministry y'all are doing. Thank you. I'm grateful for your time. Sky, you got any closing thoughts for Amanda? Uh, I would sound paternal. Uh, I'm really <laughs> proud of you. It's been fun to watch you grow and to see uh, the woman and pastor you've become. I don't say this very often, but I was uh, very proud to be your district superintendent, uh, even for a short time to represent you. Appreciated getting to know you and Justin more. Uh, And I'm so glad you're at my home church. You know, again, I'm sounding paternalistic and like an old guy, but uh, you are not really. I am an old guy. I'm not as old as you, but I'm an old guy. But I really have a lot of respect for you and your ministry and how you uh, are approaching it and wise and mature beyond the years uh, Mm -hmm. when I was your age. And uh, for that, I am thankful that uh, whatever it was moved you to to, to, to see more about yourself and, uh, to be honest, cause that, that helps everybody be honest. And that's so lacking today. We talked about root causes. Nobody wants to do the hard work to get there. Uh, but it takes hard work to get there. And, uh, again, to thine self be true. I just, I, I got nothing but great things to say. Amen. Thank you, Sky. And that one of the best days ever for me was uh, on the master's course in Augusta, Georgia, <laughs> waiting on a phone call from you when you told me I was coming to UTN. <laughs> yeah, you know, I, that was a terrible time to interrupt somebody there out there on the, uh, I've been on that hallowed course myself, so I was feeling a little guilt, but that's not something you text message somebody. Oh, no. I was, just, <laughs> I was thrilled. Well, I appreciated that conversation, and you still have a lot of folks who love you deeply in this congregation. I love it. That's my hometown. And that church was awfully good to me. Uh, and I pray they start being good to you. Oh, so many of them are. I I, uh, I, I know they are. I, I, I just wish everybody would appreciate who you are and that you're not trying to do anything, but be faithful to the gospel and do the good work. So I, I, I'm convinced you'll do it, but uh, you are in my prayer every day. Thank you. Well, I can't speak for you, Johnny, but what a sharp young woman and uh, a privilege to spend uh, an hour with her talking about ministry and allowing her to share her perspectives about ministry from uh, somebody a generation below ours. It seems to be cliche that some people worry about the next generation, but I'm not worried with folks like Amanda. No, you can speak for me with this. I think the only... uh correction I would make is I think it may be two generations below us. I don't know if one is maybe one and a half. I don't know. Thanks, buddy. Yeah, it's okay. Uh, She is a profound spiritual presence, and I am grateful for her witness today, and I am moved by her willingness to perceive and answer a call and stand right in what she calls a perfect storm. She is worthy of our prayers and support, and um, and she's a leader, and uh, the church is the better for her presence in it. Amen to that. We will be back in a couple of weeks' time with a new episode. Again, we're grateful for all the ways you stay connected to us. Let us hear from you. And until next time, we'll see you on Something to Say. Cheers. On the next Something to Say, 
Johnny and Sky welcome an old friend, Reverend Trina Morrison. Trina's journey intersects with Johnny and Skye's in some wonderfully amazing and deeply painful ways. It was Trina who approached us to ask us to make a space for grief in the midst of the turf war that is the United Methodist Church. And it is into that conversation we invite you to join us next time on Something to Say on the OAM Network, Power to the Podcast.